listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thank you, Stephanie. We are continuing our semester-long series through the parables. We've been in a series called Jesus Stories. These parables are Jesus' way of explaining some things to some people, but hiding some things from others. Those who are seeking after God will hear, will receive, will understand. But those who are of the heart and mind of rejection will not get it. So Jesus says, this is how I'm going to communicate. There are a way also for him to explain who he is and why he has come, what he has come to do. And so we've looked at several parables thus far. We looked at some of the kingdom parables of Matthew chapter 13. And then we jumped over to the gospel of Luke. And we heard Jesus tell some stories about what God is like. And we learned some marvelous, majestic things about God. And all those parables, for example, that God is willing to undignify himself to go and rescue sinners that he loves. And that we are to have that same mindset. We are to have that same attitude. Now, the parable that we've just heard read, we're back in the Gospel of Matthew. It is on the topic of forgiveness. Now, a few weeks ago, I preached in Matthew on the topic of hell. And I said that hell might be the least popular doctrine to discuss in church, save one. And now, this is that one, forgiveness. Perhaps the least popular doctrine to discuss because when forgiveness comes up, it always means that there has been an error. There has been an offense, there's been a rejection, there's been a betrayal, there's been harm and hurt and loss, and it doesn't feel good. Now, I would be willing to bet that just about all of us have heard a sermon or five on the topic of forgiveness. In fact, most of us have probably even heard this particular parable and passage preached before. So I don't want to stand here and say, hey, listen, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of brand new, brilliant insight. Not going to happen. But what I am praying is that God will speak. That as we go to God's word, we believe that God's word acts. It does something. God speaks in the present tense through that which he has already spoken. It's a mystery. The book of James says that God's living word is written on our hearts. And when we come to the written word on the page, something happens. It changes us. It transforms us. And so that's my prayer is that I would speak this morning, that we would walk through this parable, and that God would speak to us through this passage. Now, as I was thinking about this parable, it brought to mind, as often it does, and as I'm thinking about how to preach, all of my own errors come to mind, and I think that's the sermon illustration. And so I was reminded of a very important lesson that I had the opportunity to learn early in my marriage. I would commit some egregious offense to my wife, Susan, and you might ask which one, and I, I don't know, there's literally billions of them from which to choose, but I would try to say, in my best sincere apology, and I quote, <clears throat> I'm sorry, and that was it, and that was it, and I just felt like that's the deal, if I just say I'm sorry, for some of you old schoolers, that's kind of like hitting the old control, alt, delete, it just poof, it blows it up and it's gone, it restarts, like it never even happened. 
And I was so surprised that I would say, I'm sorry. And it didn't just bring immense joy to her. No, it didn't. But in fact, we actually received some very wise counsel that said, no, blockhead, you actually have to understand and convey the harm that you have done to her. Let her know that you understand. And you have to ask her for forgiveness. You don't get to say, I'm sorry, as if you're in control, because you're not. You have erred. You have to place control in her hands. You have to submit and yield and ask her to do a thing for you that you don't deserve. And I was like, oh, I think I'd rather eat a light bulb. And to this day, I am still far from being fluent in the language of apology. It sounds like a caveman who's just woken up from a nap. Um, uh, I, can't, I can't do it. It feels like dying when I have to say, will you forgive me? It is a laying aside and nailing, nailing my own self-righteousness to the cross. But when I cling to my own self-righteousness, rather than laying hold of the righteousness of another, boy, you know who I'm acting more like? Not like Jesus. I'm acting like the bad guy in the grand narrative of Scripture. And so when I yield and submit and ask forgiveness, it is a giving of control and power to somebody else. So this morning, this is what I want to talk about. I want to talk about Forgiveness, And I've been praying that after all of these years, one day, I will have the opportunity to give forgiveness back to her. It hadn't happened yet, but one of these days she's going to do something, I'm sure of it, and I'll get to say yes before she even finishes the sentence. One day I'll let you know, I'll send a newsletter or something, okay? Now this idea of forgiveness is one of the very most important things we can talk about because it is instructive to help us understand who Jesus is what he did, and gives us the tools to understand how we can interact and reconcile with one another. And so here's our big idea for the morning. Here's what I want us to know, that forgiveness is paying someone else's debt. Forgiveness is paying someone else's debt. And sometimes it feels like dying. And sometimes, as we'll read, it is dying. Now, we've heard this parable on forgiveness. I need to give a little bit of context of what's going on in the Gospel of Matthew so that we can fully understand the story that Jesus is telling. This is not an isolated little story that just comes out of nowhere. Jesus is doing a thing in his earthly ministry. And Matthew, as he writes his Gospel, is putting this together in a sequence to help us understand what Jesus has done. So a few weeks ago, we walked through the kingdom parables of Matthew 13. That's because Messiah has come. Jesus has arrived. First advent, the kingdom has been proclaimed. It was authenticated. Jesus does signs and wonders to say, the long-awaited hope of Israel, I am here. I'm not what you expect, but I am here. But that kingdom is rejected. And so Jesus in Matthew 13 says, I am rescinding, I am postponing, I am temporarily holding back the offer of the kingdom to Israel. I am now going to take it all out to the Gentiles. And entrance into the kingdom does not come by conquest or military might or being a part of a particular nation. No, entrance into the kingdom of God comes by hearing the word. And so the question is, how do you hear? How do you hear? Now, that question is going to roll itself out through the rest of the book of Matthew. Because in chapter 14, we meet a guy who doesn't hear so good. 
His name was Herod. He's a tetrarch. He's the ruler. And he has John the Baptist put to death because John the Baptist is saying the kingdom of God is at hand and it is entered into by hearing. And Herod, Herod says, I'm going to take your head for that. Jesus continues in his earthly ministry. Jesus feeds 5,000 Jewish men and their families. Jesus walks on water. He is good. This king is supernatural. He has resources. He has power. He is sovereign even over creation. He has the resources to provide for his people, but he's not done. He goes across the Sea of Galilee and he feeds 4,000 Gentiles and their families to say, I am to be the king in this age, not just of Israel, but of all those who will have me as king. This is the gospel. And then Jesus, well, he calls the Pharisees hypocrites. He says, you should be the shepherds of Israel, but instead, all you care about is your own status and your power. And that's it. The tension mounts and escalates so much that something has got to give. Something has got to absolutely burst and that's what begins to happen and so then jesus takes a little disciples retreat he takes his boys these disciples all the way up in the way far 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 north of this place called caesarea philippi this is not a place where good little jewish boys go caesarea philippi is the heart of pagan hedonism they have a pan festival there all sorts of debauchery and fornication and licentiousness and concupiscence happens up at Caesarea Philippi. There's not enough penicillin in the world to deal with what's happening in Caesarea Philippi. It's nasty. And Jesus takes his disciples and says, hey guys, who do people say that I am? And, Jesus, and the disciples say, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're this, some say you're that. And Jesus says, yeah, 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 yeah. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the anointed one the son of the living God. And Jesus is nicely done, Pete. That's well done. But you didn't say that of your own wits because you're not that bright. That came to you by the spirit of God. Immediately after, Jesus takes him up on a high mountain and he is transfigured before them. He pulls back the created order and shows his full deity and majesty and his glory. I am the king. I am Yahweh. This is what the disciples are experiencing. They go back down the mountain and they enter this little town called Capernaum. It's on the northeastern corner of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus begins to talk about what life in this age will be like once he's gone. And he says, if someone has something against you or someone has done something to you, you get to help them to repent. You get to lead them to rethink their thinking. This is how we discipline and help one another to to reorient our trajectory. And so Peter, with all the other disciples sitting around, picking their teeth after a sandwich or whatever, sees an opportunity to display how brilliant he is. He says, hey, Jesus, in Matthew 18, 21, how many times shall I forgive? <laughs> because you see, in those days, the rabbis all taught that you were to forgive three times. But that's all, three times. One strike, two strike, three strikes, that person is out. You wipe your hands, they're dead to you. And so Peter, well, he's been walking with Jesus for a while. He understands that seven is sort of the number of completion. He's trying to demonstrate his extravagance, that he really appreciates this. And so I think he's sitting there with his disciple buddies around, and he says, let's see, Jesus, how many times shall I forgive? Let's see, three times two plus one is a bonus. Seven. I, should I forgive seven times? Look what Jesus says. Jesus says, oh, Peter, 
You are the dimmest light bulb in the rack. You know that, right? And by the way, I think it's awesome that in the Gospel of Matthew, it's always Peter who's the dumb one. Like Matthew and Peter must have sort of been like good buddies and also sparring partners. Because Matthew's always helping us to understand just how dim Peter is. And he's also the one to whom I can relate the most. I should also add that. Jesus said to him, verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Or seven times 70. The translation there is a little bit wonky. It's either 77 or 490. The point is, it's limitless. There's not a statute of limitations. You keep forgiving. There's not an end to it. The rabbis are wrong. I tell you, vastly more. And he can see all the disciples adopt that face. You know the one. We call it the calf at a new gate stare. Kind of 700 and what, 490 times. What? Then Jesus says, boys, pull up a stool. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to, verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So what we're going to find out is Jesus is going to tell a story. Now, this is not an accurate historical narrative. This didn't really happen. Jesus is telling a parable. There are some details that he leaves out that are not for us to try and to supply. That's not what the parable is for. The parable is to illustrate something that Jesus is trying to convey. Apparently, there is a king in this story who is fabulously wealthy has all the resources of his realm. See, we don't understand how money works in those days. In our day and age, money is, more or less, owned by the government that is elected by the population, the public, and that money is in circulation. And so in one sense, although indirectly, it sort of belongs to all of us. That's how money works in our day and age in the 21st century. It belongs to all of us. It's in wide circulation, but not in antiquity. In antiquity, all of the money actually belongs to the king. This is why in the Roman Empire, all of the coinage is stamped with Caesar's face. His image is on it because it's his. All the money belongs to him, and it's out there in circulation to accomplish the, the needs economically of the empire, but it belongs to him. And so in this story, this king is trying to figure out where all of his money is, where all of his resources are. We're not told why. Perhaps he's going to go to war. Perhaps he's going to build something and expand. Perhaps he just wants to know what it is. We're not told, and so it doesn't matter. We don't need to try to read into that. But he brings in all of his servants. This is what we find in verse 24. Oh, sorry, verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle the accounts with his servants. Verse 24, when he began to settle one of his servants was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Gulp and gasp. Now, 10,000 is kind of like the biggest number you can really easily write in Greek. So it's just the biggest number. And a talent, either gold or silver, is somewhere between 58 to 75 pounds of metal. So if one single talent, let's just say, is 65 pounds pounds of gold, and this guy owes 10,000 chunks of 75 or 65 pounds of gold. Let's see, that would be, carry the one, multiply times the speed of sound, and, at like a trillion dollars, okay? It's like a trillion dollars. It is an absolutely gobsmacking sum. It is, it is an enormous, infinite sum, which begs the question, how in the world does a servant rack up a trillion dollar debt? 
Like, clearly, this is not the gardener, this is not the chef, this is not the butler. He didn't have access to those kinds of resources. Somehow, this servant, while he's more than just a servant or an employee, we think of servant in those, in those terms, but this servant is probably a vice regent of some sort. He has responsibility for some area of the kingdom, and somehow, he's down a cool trillion. That's a bad day. When the king calls and says, I need you to come and show me what, you know, where's, the, where's your cool trill? What are you going to do about that? So here's what happens. When he began to settle, one was brought to him, owed him 10,000 talents, verse 25. And since he could not pay, you think, because he didn't just happen to have a trillion sitting around on his debit card. He could not pay. His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. He's not going to settle for a cool trillion, but I am now going to put your wife and your kid in bondage and all that you have so that you can pay. Now, I don't know if you've ever actually been in prison, but here's what I know. It's difficult to be economically productive in prison. So this debt is never going to be paid off. It is completely insurmountable. And this man's debt is enslaving, as it were, not only himself, but his wife and his family as well. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, begging him. Listen to what he asks. Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. He does not ask for grace. He does not ask for mercy. He just asks for a little more time. Just give me some time. I can fix this. Do you understand the lunacy of this statement? Just give me a little bit more time. I can fix this. I owe you a trillion dollars. I, on my best day, over about 40 years, could maybe come up with mm, 150 bucks and some buttons. That would be it. This guy says, just give me a little patience. I can fix this. Verse 27 is the key. This is where you want a smiley face, asterisk, emoji, whatever you do. Underline verse 27. This is the key about forgiveness. We're going to see three ingredients. And out of pity for him... The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Those are the three ingredients. This guy has absolutely no choice, but the master does something. This good king of all resources is going to do something marvelous. Verse 27, out of pity for him. This is one of my favorite words in the entire New Testament. Out of splenthesis. This is his bowels hurt. Now, some of you know what that feels like when you encounter certain people in your life. It's not like that. This is, he has deep physical empathy out of a concern for this man. This man who does not deserve it. He has physiological empathy. We might translate it thus. His heart goes out to him. He has compassion. He simply feels for this guy. That's the first ingredient. He feels something. He recognizes, he enters into the discomfort that this man must be feeling. Some of you know what that feels like. Secondly, the king let him go. He released him. He cut the bonds of what was owed. And then thirdly, the king forgave the debt, which means the king scribbles it off at great personal expense. He pays it himself. Now we're talking billions and billions of dollars, a cool trillion, and the king says, because of how much I am feeling for you, I'm going to wipe that out. 
at great personal expense because remember, all money belongs to him anyway. He's just saying, now it's gone. It's out there. I have lost it. But for you, I am willing to do that. So just to reiterate, he felt for him. He released him. He paid for him. That's forgiveness. Forgiveness is paying someone else's debt. Just like that, it's wiped out. Even though the guy didn't or couldn't earn it or accomplish it on his own. We're not told why. Why does the king do this? But the implication is that this servant is either just an incompetent bad manager or he's corrupt and wicked. We're not told which, but apparently the king, the master, assumes that it's just incompetence, that he's just a bad manager, and so he forgives the whole thing and sends him out. But that's going to be important later on. Remember that. And then what I think is one of the most tragic words in all of Scripture is in verse 28. The very first word of verse 28 is, but. This is the hinge on which the entire parable swings. This is the fulcrum. Something tremendous, marvelous, majestic, and mysterious has happened. This trillion-dollar debt that could never be repaid in a thousand lifetimes has been released, but it doesn't change the man as it should. When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, probably the next guy in line, and he owed him a hundred denarii. Now, a denarii, as you know, is one day's wage, and that day would equate to about 17 cents a day. So a hundred times 17 cents, let's see, carry the one. I don't know, it's, uh, it's not nothing, but it absolutely pales in comparison to the trillion dollars that the first servant owes him, right? He owes him a hundred denarii, and if this was not so tragic, it would actually be comical. Because verse 28 says, and seizing him, he began to choke him. Didn't even tell him why yet. Like he just grabs him and, and the second servant's going, hi, Steve. What's happening? He grabs him, chokes him, and then he tells him why. You ever felt something like that towards somebody? You don't even give him a chance to understand why. You just instantly on a dime turn to rage. He says, Pay what you owe. Now, just as a quick aside, boy, if this isn't the way things are. We pray for blessing. We pray for bounty. We pray for provision and prosperity. But I don't know about you, but in seasons of plenty, my old sin nature is really strong. It is during those seasons, those times of abundance, when my flesh flashes and I can turn on a dime. Rather than experiencing joy and gratitude for the one who has given it, I seek almost instinctively to serve myself. And so this servant demonstrates this. He is the recipient of an unspeakable gift of grace and mercy. And instantly he says, but, and he turns to that soul-feeding, counterfeit joy of rage because it feels good. Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant, watch what this fellow servant does because it is identical. It is congruent with what the first servant does. His fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. He implored him. He begged him, have patience with me and I will repay you. Same exact request the first servant has made. This guy doesn't ask for grace nor mercy. He just asks for some more time. I will fix this. But, verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. He didn't feel for him. He did not let him go. In fact, he submitted him to prison, and he certainly didn't pay his debt. The three ingredients to forgiveness, he does not do. 
He is not changed. That's the second scene. Now we go to the third scene, verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. Oh, that's a bad translation. It needs to be much, much stronger. They were freaked out, man. This is as serious and scary as it can be. These fellow servants are absolutely horrified because, you see, what is Jesus telling us? When there is a failure in forgiveness, the entire community, the entire congregation, the entire campus is fractured. It causes great distress. It causes seismic ripples to go out throughout the gathered people. When there is a failure in forgiveness, his fellow servants saw what had taken place. They were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him back and said to him, Oh, you're not just incompetent. You're evil. You're wicked. You are corrupt. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, but clearly you were insincere. You received the offer of forgiveness, but clearly you did not appropriate. You did not assimilate that because you were not changed. Verse 33, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? You received so much mercy. Could you not respond and likewise? No, because... You didn't receive it to begin with. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. The text goes on to say, to be tortured. It's actually much harsher than this translation. Until he should pay all his debt. Here again, there's no way he can repay this debt. It is a trillion dollars, and now he is bound up in prison. He will never be able to pay this off. And then Jesus adds his own commentary to the story in verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus says the king of grace will return as the king of justice. Will you receive grace now? Will you receive it? Now this is not a parable where Jesus says you have to forgive so that I will forgive you or you have to forgive in order that I will forgive you. No, he's saying those who are forgiven, forgive. It's one of the hallmarks of being forgiven is you are able, ready, and willing to do so. Now, it bears mentioning that the people to whom Jesus is saying this in Capernaum were utterly incapable of doing what he just described. Couldn't do it. No way, no chance. They're only in the flesh. Jesus has not yet died, been buried, raised again. He has not ascended, nor has the Holy Spirit fallen to indwell the believer. And so the people to whom he is speaking have to be thinking, but I can't do this. I am bound up in my own flesh, my own desire for self. I can't do it. Ah. But Matthew is writing this to make sure that we understand this has happened. Jesus has done all of these things. Jesus has done these things. Many years later, Matthew writes this story to the church to say, don't you see what has happened? The good king has done a thing. This is a story about forgiveness. The counselor has come. Forgiveness is paying someone else's debt. So I want to give you three so what's or three now what's, three applications or implications with what we do with this passage. Three things for us to think on. Number one, getting grace means giving grace. And I mean that as a double entendre. Getting grace, meaning receiving it, taking it into one's life, but also getting grace, understanding what it means, recognizing the enormity of the debt that has been paid on our behalf means we give 
grace. Forgiveness means willingly giving up the right to seek repayment from the one who harmed you. It means giving someone what they don't deserve because you recognize and affirm the sovereignty and wisdom of God that even though you have lost something because of the action of someone else, you have also gained everything because of the action of someone else. This is what getting grace means. This is the action of stopping the impulse to rage and deliberately reminding ourselves that this short-term life is not all there is. There are worse things than dying. There are better things than human flourishing. We are to keep the long view. And when I say long, I mean we are to be eternally minded. We might have lost something temporarily that causes us great umbrage, but a Christian who has gotten grace can give grace and say, not saying it doesn't hurt by any means. It is not stifling or suppressing and pretending that nothing has happened at all. Forgiveness is, in a very real sense, however, it is an act of worship. It is absolutely an act of worship. It is responding to who God is and what he has done, and someone else is the beneficiary. Because of what God has given me, I am free now to release that thing because God, apparently in his sovereignty and wisdom, doesn't think that I need it. I trust him. Forgiveness is an expression of worship and love. Number two, forgiveness must be granted before it is felt. Now, this is a big one. We're going to do a little bit of group therapy here. Forgiveness must be granted before it is felt. Most of us will forgive when we feel like it. When we finally feel like enough time has passed, enough scar tissue is healed, when I finally feel like it, then I will forgive. No. It's not the biblical model. Forgiveness must be granted before it is felt. We have to preach a sermon to our own soul and remind ourselves of truth and not base our actions and attitudes on how we feel. But what is truth? God's word supersedes how we feel. So three quick tips and pointers of how we are to do this. When we are hurt, when we are harmed, when we are offended, number one, refuse to hurt the person in return. Do not take vengeance. Don't you see what Jesus has done? He has upended, inverted, and turned inside out the way of fallenness. Way back in Genesis chapter 4, Cain kills his brother Abel. And then God puts the mark of Cain on, on, the mark of Cain on him and says, no, no one's going to kill you. Cain's descendant, Lamech, comes along and says, well, if someone did that to him, then I want the mark too. And if someone offends me, I will do it to them 70 times 7. I will take vengeance unlimitedly. And Jesus upends it and inverts it and turns it inside out and says, no, no, no. I am undoing the curse. Far as the curse is found, we will forgive 70 times 7. Refuse to hurt the person in return. Do not take vengeance. And we have to decide that in advance. If we wait till the heat of the moment, we will fall. So choose in advance. Number two, do not speak ill against the person. I have found I am one of the most brilliant communicators if it has to do with talking bad about someone who has wronged me. I can come up with flowery, adjectival descriptions and adverbial phrases to describe how they have wronged me. But that's not forgiveness. We have to decide in advance not to speak ill against that person in any context, under any circumstance. Number three, do not root or cheer against them, even in your heart silently. 
Do not wish their ill. Do not hope they get a speeding ticket. Do not hope they get a paper cut on their eyeball. Nothing. In fact, what you do is you pray for them out loud, publicly. And it will feel like dying. Because it is. But this is how when Paul tells us to mortify the flesh, this is what he means. Find out, root out those crevices of self-righteousness that do not come from Jesus, they come from the other guy. And nail them, nail them, nail them by praying out loud for the other person. Besides, all of those things that you might try to do, hurting the person in response, taking vengeance, speaking ill of them, cheering for them, all they do is drill you down into the soil. They have no effect. In fact, they self-propagate themselves. There's no way for them to ever really repay that debt. There is no undo. No amount of their payback can ever make it like it never happened, so stop expecting it. It's never going to be like it never happened. There is a new normal. And unless you know you are in Christ, a new creation, that has received, received every good and perfect thing from the Father, you won't be able to do this. You can't, or you can't do it for long. You can't sustain if you are securely rooted in the infinite love of God, you'll be able to. Now, here's the hard word. This is not advice. This is not a suggestion. This is not a recommendation. No, beloved, it is a command. It's not advice. It's a command. Colossians 3, verses 12 to 13 says this. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. It's the same word, splank voice. Belly ache for your brother. Feel their anguish. Enter into it with them. Allow your heart to go out to them. If you are indwelled by God's Spirit and you encounter suffering and misery, God's Spirit will yank your soul out and smear it on them. Allow this to happen. It's not advice. It's a command. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you must forgive not so that you will be forgiven but because you are the forgiven forgive do you see third point forgiveness costs something forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering or as C.S. Lewis put it I love this Lewis said everybody loves the idea of forgiveness until they have something to forgive Somebody always pays the debt. Somebody must suffer. I was reminded this week of a long time ago in high school. I was trying to make a little extra money to pay for some gas for my 77 Datsun. Yeah, that's right. And I asked one of my dad's very best friends, a man named George Wyatt, if I could come and cut his grass. And I said, oh, by the way, I don't, uh, you know, I don't have a lawnmower or any gasoline, so can I borrow yours and cut your grass, and then would you pay me to do this? And he said, yes. So I went over to Mr. Wyatt's house, and I figured out how to get this thing going, and I fired up, and I noticed he has this, what I didn't know at the time, because I'm from the panhandle, there was this tree in the backyard, and apparently now I know it was a cypress tree. For you botanists, you know that cypress trees have what they call cypress knees. I didn't know this. It's this gnarly little fist that sticks up out of the ground, and I thought, well, that's unsightly. I'll take care of those for Mr. Wyatt. So I took his Toro motor, and I'm going over there, and I raised it up, and I just dropped it right on those cypress knees. Oh, yeah. Sheared the drivetrain off, destroyed the blade, black smoke coming up out of the engine, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, this is bad. 
And everything in me wanted to jump in my little 77 Datsun that had three gears and not squeal the tires, but, you know, push it with one foot and get out of there as fast as I could. I didn't because I knew my dad would actually shoot me in the back of the head. So I went and knocked on the door. Huh, Mr. Wyatt? And I think I remember saying these exact words. Something happened to your mower. Mr. Wyatt comes out and says, well, what happened? And I said, well, this is the weirdest thing. I was pushing it over here, and then I, I like, you know, I like dropped it on those thingies. And he said, well, that's wood. I said, oh, yeah, I know that now, sir. And it was dead. I mean, it was dead, Jim. Here's me. Mr. Wyatt, I'm so sorry. Please don't tell my dad. I will, I will pay you back. I will buy you a new more, says the guy, now with no job, with no gas money and no, and no other place to ever mow anyone else's yard. And by the way, you're all thinking, I'm never going to see my chainsaw again, am I? No, it's gone. But I remember Mr. Wyatt saying, no, no, you know what? Don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Now, him saying that, did that make the lawnmower suddenly miraculously just reappear whole? No, it's still dead. He had to foot the bill. He had to incur the cost of replacing his own lawnmower. He didn't do anything wrong except for allow me to come and use it. He incurred the debt. I didn't realize until much later. Do you know the reason why? It's because I didn't understand it fully, but because Mr. Wyatt and my dad were friends, he loved me. And he thought I was worth it. He thought I was worth more than a lawnmower. So his forgiveness was an expression of love. He was saying, Eric, you're worth it. You know what I needed in my life in those days? I needed an older man that I respected to say I had some sort of worth whatsoever. And that's what he did. Please hear me. I am not saying forgiveness is, is easy. It absolutely isn't. But it is an act of love particularly when we get the opportunity to forgive someone who we don't particularly like. Now you really feel the sting. Forgiveness is paying someone else's debt. But please hear me. As important as this passage is, and it is, in teaching us the very words of God with respect to how we're to treat one another and be reconciled, that is not the primary thrust of this text. Because remember, Matthew is writing this right in the sequence of events of Jesus' ministry and what he is doing. Matthew is telling us that Jesus is saying, I'm the one who has done this. This is Jesus' way of explaining, I'm the good king. I have the resources. This is what I have come to do. My father, the king of the cosmos, has sent me to be the pain of dying to pay your debt. And regardless of how moral and decent and well-behaved you are, regardless of how you vote, regardless of how many times you've won Bible Jeopardy, there is no way you or I can ever repay our own debt, ever. This is Jesus saying, boys, this is why I have come. It's not to establish the kingdom that you're expecting. I have come to pay your debt, and I have done nothing wrong. I will do nothing wrong, and yet I voluntarily, willingly go to the cross because you are worth it. So I invite you this, this morning to believe that your debt has been paid. I invite you to believe that Jesus' heart has gone out to you. He felt abdominal pain of discomfort as he thought through all of the debt that we would owe. He has paid that debt. He has released us to a life of freedom here and now so that we might have peace with God. Romans 5. What does peace with God look like? I found this this week from uh, Tim Keller. 
Tim Keller's written this story in a number of books that he's written, and I just it's one of my absolute four favorite stories because it is about Corey Ten Boom. Keller writes the story of Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom was a Dutch woman who lived with her sister in the Netherlands during World War II. And Corey Ten Boom and her sister Betsy were hiding Jews from the Nazis. But if you know the story, at some point they're found out, they're caught, and they're imprisoned in Ravensbrück concentration camp. And while they're there, Betsy, the sister, becomes ill uh, with a lack of care. She dies. She passes away. Corey Ten Boom survived, and after she was released from the concentration camp when the war was over, she traveled around and was a very uh, gifted, productive speaker, preacher, and evangelist, and a teacher. And so she writes this uh, about an experience she had in Europe shortly after the war ended. This is what she writes. She says, at a church service in Munich where I was speaking, I saw him. The former SS man who had stood guard at the so-called shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrook. With the other guards, he had often run his hand over our bodies as we went by and responded callously to requests for help. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had ever seen after the war. And suddenly, it was all there again. The heaps of clothing. My sister Betsy's pain-blanched face. When he came up to me as the church was emptying, he said, ah, How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, to think that, as you say, he has washed away my sins. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, but my hand stayed by my side, angry, Vengeful thoughts boiled through me. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. And I silently prayed, Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. This is what peace with God looks like. And this is what the world needs most desperately. And it will feel like dying. Forgiveness is paying someone else's debt. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I invite you to believe. See, our scriptures tell us that you have a debt. But the only one who can pay that debt stands ready to do so willingly, freely, empathetically. We believe that God's word is truth, and it tells us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he lived a perfect life, fulfilling the demands of the law perfectly, sinlessly, and he paid the wages of sin, which is death, and he offers a marvelous exchange where we will never have to experience that death, that life apart from God, but we get credit for the righteous life that he lived. I invite you to repent, to rethink your thinking. Is it true? I dare you to pray and ask God, if it's true that he came to save you, we already know what the answer is. And for the rest of you, maybe you've been a believer for a long time, I just want to remind you that we too get the opportunity to receive forgiveness on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. When we sin, not if, but when we sin, we ask our Father for forgiveness knowing that he has always and already said yes. We ask him to apply that sin to the finished work of Christ on the cross. That's what confession is. It is agreeing with God that we have a debt that Jesus has paid. And Jesus 
is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in view of that mercy, we are to be a forgiving people as well. This is the gospel. Forgiveness is paying someone else's debt because ours has been paid. Let's pray together. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.